I'm Kristen Hetzel, vacation planner, world traveler, Disney foodie, and theme park fan. I'm Al John Go. I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host a Disney List podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. You can even stream us on Source Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook, the Disney List podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com. Podcast talking all things Disney with your hosts L. John Go and Dave Bossert. What a great show today, folks! We got Black Cauldron producer Joe Hale. We're going to be talking about Sean Connery. Rest in peace. I'm Al John Go. I am a huge Marvel, Disney, and Star Wars fan. Big fan of pop culture, and every week on this show. We talk about all things Disney with my co-host with the most, Mr. Dave. Dave. Al John, how are you? Good. This is Dave Bossert. I'm an artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform, as well as like us and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, you can email us questions, and we do uh, read all the questions that come in, and we try and get them on air, but you can email us at John at skullrockpodcast.com or to me at dave at skullrockpodcast.com and wow we've got one heck of a show ahead of us don't we al john we have an awesome show for you as i teased earlier we're going to talk to uh, joe hale who's a friend of yours obviously uh, a great producer and artist and we're going to talk to him about the Black Cauldron. I mean, the Black Cauldron celebrating a huge anniversary. Day. Hey, 35th anniversary. I mean, it's hard to believe, isn't it? I, I know. I, I just saw the film uh, the other week, watching it with my wife, Kristen. And once again, it holds up. And I just love everything about the art style. I like the fact that it's edgy. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, and yeah, I, you that. know, I, I'm wondering, I'm going to ask you, Al, John, okay. when you when you look at the Black Cauldron, does the Black Cauldron feel more of that? Um, uh, I, I guess really what I'm looking at is it, the, does the, the styling feel like vintage Disney animated feature film compared to the pictures that came after it? Um, for me, it does, by the way. And, and I'll just throw that out. But I, I just curious what your thoughts are. You know, a little bit of both. It's uh, it's interesting because the lines, I think, are different mm-hmm. um, to a certain degree. There were there was a time, Dave, and and where like 101 Dalmatians, for example, it it had a little bit of a I don't know. It was and you're you're the artist, so please correct me. But it was a different, just a slightly different look, and you know, Oliver and Company had a slightly different look, but the 
the, well, you the know, textures. like every Disney animated film has a style to it right. that they hew off of. But but for me, I've always looked at the Black Cauldron. It's almost like it's the tail end of that um, uh, generation. Uh, uh, you know, the nine old men, the guys that did those early pictures, Pinocchio and Snow White, and, yes. uh, Bambi and and Lady and the Tramp and stuff like that. And and I always get that feeling. And I just rewatched the movie last. Last week uh, in prep for our show, and you know the backgrounds are stunning. I think in yeah. the Black Cauldron, and there's some really terrific animation. I mean, look, we're we're going to get into all of that uh, with uh, with Joe, but a um, couple of bits to talk about. I mean, the passing of Sean Connery. Yep. Wow. Yep. We'll, we'll we'll definitely get into that. And uh, but yes, before we do that, let's send a shout out to our incredible supporters you know we do this podcast free every single week for you it's our pleasure to share our fandom with you but we'd like to give our shout outs to our big supporters we have Lindsay and charles once again thank you so much for supporting our show you're part of the family and if you're interested feel free to visit us at anchor.fm forward slash skull rock podcast and show your support it's all good and now i guess it's time to talk about Skull Rock Podcast, ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. Oh my gosh, Dave. Can 2020 take any more from us? I mean, it's just one of these, you know, one of these uh, several weeks we've had so many titans of entertainment pass, pass away. We have, and you know something I have to say, Sean Connery, great actor, Academy Award winning actor. Uh, He had such a presence on screen. But you know what? He was 90 years old. What a life. Oh, man. What a life. I mean, he was the original James Bond. I need another thousand. I admire your courage, Miss... uh... Trench. Sylvia Trench. I admire your luck, Mr... Bond. James Bond. Mr. Bond, I suppose you wouldn't care to um, raise the limit? I have no objection. And, you know, I could talk about James Bond all, all day long because I've seen every one of the movies. Right. Um, and I'm chomping at the bit to see the latest one. And we had a scare last week because... They literally were talking about possibly putting uh, No Time to Die, the latest James Bond movie with Daniel Craig. They were talking about putting that onto one of the streaming platforms. And I'm like, no, you're not. You can't do that. There's no way. And obviously the economics didn't make sense for them to do it because they're just going to put it out, hopefully in April. It was supposed to go out last April. It got moved to November. And now because of the pandemic that we're all in the midst of, it's been moved again to next April, April 21, uh, to see it. But boy, Sean Connery was the man. He started it all with those three simple words, right? Exactly, right. Bond, James Bond. Shaken, not stirred. There you go. There another three words there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, there. I mean, it's so quotable. I mean, and the the Scottish accent, you know, Mitch Money Penny, right? Yeah. I mean, just yes. everything about it. Uh, I named my dog. You know. I mean, there's just so many things you could say about Sean Connery. You know? And what did you find, Junior? Junior, Dad, 
Jeez, what does it always mean? Is this Junior? That's his name. Henry Jones Jr. Like Indiana. We named the dog Indiana. Maybe go home now, please. I have a special place in my heart because my father really really loved James Bond and we would go to the library and check out James Bond movies on eight millimeter and he'd run it through the projector. And that's how we watched Bambi. That's how we watched Pinocchio. That's how we watched James Bond. This is before the the VHS generation happened. But yeah. can you, I just, yeah. I just can't imagine life without 007 and the prototype, the spy, the secret agent, 007, uh, Sean Connery. And if, if it wasn't for his portrayal of, the legendary James Bond, you would have no Taken, you would have no um, uh, Born, uh, Born, Born Identities, movies, yeah, yeah, any I of mean, those films. You know, John you know, Wick, I mean, a lot of those, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, the Bond, the Bond uh, franchise really sort of set the tone for it, didn't it? It really did. Do you have a favorite Bond film of his? You know, I, I have to tell you, I really like the Daniel Craig Bond movies. Um, I've been a big fan of Daniel Craig as James Bond. Um, and, you know, look, it's like, do I have a favorite animated picture? Sure, I do. But, you know, uh, at the end of the day, I love them all. You I get, know, I, and, yeah. and I love all the James Bond movies. But do you have one film of his that you like the, the like so much? Because I can say Dr. No very easily. The other uh, one would be. Finger. Okay. Right. I mean, uh, to me, uh, uh, that that one stands out a little bit. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think Dr. No is, is, is an excellent Bond picture. So, but yeah. I, I mean, you know, the, the one thing about Sean Connery, he didn't win his Academy Award for any of the Bond portrayals. No. He, he, he won it for the Untouchables. Yeah, which is also very good. I mean, my yeah. tribute, my tribute uh, to him was the original, the Untouchable, the Professor, Sir Sean Connery. And that's, I mean, Untouchables was amazing. And I would also say that if I was to choose one of my favorite James Bond movies of his, I have to go back to the backpack because because Thunderball was one of my favorites. And when James put on that backpack, that jetpack, and started blasting off, I was like, man, this is so cool. I've got to make one. And I remember vividly as a child going and getting some cardboard. And, and I used to do this all the time. I'd take cardboard and cut it up and then craft stuff with it, whether it was, you know, an office space or a desk or just funny things. And then I made a jetpack out of a out of a out of some cardboard boxes. And I was like, this is cool. I'm gonna be like James <laughs> yeah, no, I, I listen, I mean, a, a, every one of us has done things like that growing up and watching these movies. Um, I, you know, for me, I, I just have to say, I, I just am enthralled every time I watch a Bond movie. I know. I know. It's so great. And I can, and I can watch them over and over again. That, that's the beauty of, of those films, you know? Right. And I and I think too, you know, circling back to Disney, the fact that he played Indiana Jones's father was great. The chemistry I thought uh, between Harrison Ford and him in in the Last Crusade for Indiana Jones was just absolutely great. And I thought they they paired well together. Absolutely, and Sir Sean Connery, uh, we will have all the memories and all of the films to enjoy in perpetuity. Uh, may he rest in peace. Dave, you sent me that uh, link, that link about Netflix. Yeah, you know something. It, it made me think. Uh, 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 
you know, again, the the news was that Netflix is going to raise their prices. I think they're raising it a dollar or two uh, per month uh, for the uh, it's a buck, I think, uh, increase for the basic service. But but this is going to be the beginning of it. I think that you're going to see across the board all the streaming services from time to time are going to start raising their prices. You look at Disney Plus, without question, I think you're going to see a price increase coming uh, sooner rather than later because they originally projected that they were going to have 60 million subscribers in the first five years. And they got 60 million. They blew past that, by the way, uh, in the first eight months uh, right. of the service. So kudos to them, you know, for for that. But you can definitely see. I I think they're going to raise their prices, uh, just like they do at the park. Um, you know, the periodic price increases. And in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if you see an increase in uh, park prices next year uh, or whenever this pandemic is really completely over and everybody who has been self-isolating and cooped up in their homes wants to get the heck out of there. I, I'll tell you right now, the parks will have record attendance. That's what's going to start happening once we get through this pandemic because people want to get out of their homes. Oh, this and, is true. And, and by the way, when that happens, I think you're going to see viewership drop off and you may see attrition in subscribership to all of these different uh, streaming platforms that that may happen. Well, you heard it here, folks. Dave is um, he's a uh, he's omniscient. He knows things, <laughs> you know, I, well, maybe, maybe maybe he's prescient. I don't know how you want to position it, but but mark mark his words day and date. Um, I, I, I'm thinking too, uh, with this increase, you know, once again, people, uh, people want great content. They don't mind paying a dollar, a little extra. Cause we do the same thing with Hulu and Disney plus we added stars for like a dollar and right. it's like, well, great, you know, no problem. We'll add on stars. But then again, as I said in, in previous podcasts, uh, I stopped CBS, um, you know, uh, CBS All Access, and I stopped. Uh, I actually stopped Netflix until we have the, you know, one of our shows come back on. Um, and I don't watch AMC until The Walking Dead. Now The Walking Dead's back, so we may we may subscribe again, and then. But we want to binge watch everything, and that's just kind of our habit. And, well, I, yeah. I, I got to tell you, I totally hear you on that, but I have a bone to pick because uh, The Mandalorian dropped on Friday, October 30th. I watched the first episode, d didn't look to see if there were other episodes, but I decided, oh, it's Saturday afternoon. I'm going to watch the second episode because I thought, well, didn't they put up all 10 episodes of the uh, of season two like other streamers do so that we can binge watch this? And then I find out, to my surprise, <laughs> I might add, that I have to wait a week yeah. for the next episode. Okay. That's outrageous. That's outrageous. outrageous. That's an affront to binge watching. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, you know, they did this. They did this last season with The Mandalorian, and I just laughed. I said, this is how they get people past that one week 
trial window. You you get you get them hooked. You can't watch everything all at the same time. You have to have you have to watch the Mandalorian because you have to have water cooler quote unquote water cooler talk. And everybody's asking me, Aljon, Aljon, have you seen the Mandalorian season opener yet? And I said, my wife and I haven't yet. We just okay news breaking news here, folks. We just got into foster kids. We you know my wife and I have been waiting for kids, and now we got these foster to adopt children, and we love them to death. <laughs> Congratulations. Oh, thank you, Dave. But that leaves me with no Mandalorian. It's like, you know, day and night bottle feeding. We're doing all kinds of stuff and I haven't slept right, but we have to wait to do Mandalorian when the kids are put to sleep. And so hopefully that night will be tonight. But having well, said that, I, yeah, we'll see. Look, I, I watched the first episode. I love it. I'm hooked. Uh, and now I'm going to not watch it for several weeks so <laughs> that the episodes pile up so that when I do sit down, I can watch maybe two or three episodes in a row. That's, that's right. how I'm going to. That's that's my strategy right that's, now. That's your strategy. I, yeah. I think we're, we're, I think we're done with the news because we're going to go on to a really, I, I think, an incredible guest, uh, 95 years old, still has it all together. It's Joe Hale, the producer of The Black Cauldron. We're going to start talking to him shortly. Anything else before we go into that, Al John? No, I think we're ready for our interview of the week. I'm Al John Goh, co-host of the Disney List podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock podcast, here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel, vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times so they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next disney cruise disney park trip adventures by disney they can contact me at theme parks and cruises at gmail.com Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. We are so honored and welcomed. Uh, We are just so honored to have here not only one of the most amazing animators and visual effects people around. He's been nominated for an Academy Award for The Black Hole, one of my favorite films. Also, uh, an animation for Robin Hood, Sleeping Beauty, and of course, the producer of The Black Cauldron that also Dave worked on. Please welcome Joe Hale. Welcome to the show, Joe. Glad to be here. <laughs> oh yeah. Hi, hi, Joe. It's Dave. How you doing? Just doing fine. So, so Joe, to to start out with, I wanted to kind of put in context uh, for our listeners. This past June, you turned ninety-five years old. Yes. <laughs> awesome. And, 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 it's unbelievable. You were born in June of 1925, and yeah. you, you were born in Michigan, but you grew up in Indiana. No, no, it's just the opposite. I was born in Indiana. Oh, I grew up in Michigan. <laughs> yeah, I was born in okay. a little, little right. town. It, was, it wasn't even a town. It, I looked it up. I Googled it, uh, and uh, it's, now it's just it's a parking lot. Uh, <laughs> they, they, yeah, literally. Uh, it was a, uh, a little, little village. 
village? It was a, a series of little white one-room shacks along a, 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 an onion field. Wow. And uh, my dad, uh, this was, you know, during the Depression, he was wheel-hoeing uh, wheel onions. And uh, my mother uh, uh, knew when I was due, so she uh, made sure he was out of the house. <laughs> and my mother delivered me by herself. Wow. And then she waved a uh, blanket or something and it got my father's attention. And he came in and she sent him, she said, go get your mother. And he went and got his mother and she came over and helped her clean everything up. <laughs> wow. That's something but else. I, I uh, <clears throat> lived there till we were, until uh, I was four. And then we uh, moved to... Uh, Michigan, Chelsea, Michigan, a little town about 15 miles, <clears throat> I think, uh, near near Ann Arbor. I think it was east of Ann Arbor, no, west of Ann Arbor. And uh, and I understand that you saw uh, Bambi seven times in three days uh, yeah. when it was released. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. To me, that's. Still my favorite Disney movie of all time. I, I, we looked at it just the other day. I hadn't seen it. I purposely stayed away from it for several years because I wanted to see if it still had that impact. And it sure did. It was a, To me, it's still Disney's perfect film. It's one of those movies that has uh, resonated from generation to generation. Yes. And, and we... I, I'm going to see it with my two uh, grandnieces. Uh, Great granddaughters. Granddaughter, daughters. Great granddaughters, honey. <laughs> Great granddaughters in a few weeks when things kind of get back to normal. Oh, good. I want to see it with, with them. With fresh eyes. And I can remember sitting during interviews. I remember this one interview with, I think, uh, Tom Leach was... Some I don't know, I don't remember who the guy was, but some newspaper man or something. And they were interviewing my office and we were talking about art. And I said, well, if I, I got you talking about Bambi. And I said, uh, if I had the, uh, to make a choice between saving Bambi, the, the negative of Bambi and the Mona Lisa, I, I, I know which one I'd take. <laughs> and That's I awesome. remember seeing... Uh, the guy from publicity going, oh, kind of wincing. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I believe that, and I would. Well, the Disney animated films are works of art. Uh, yeah, really. And, and uh, every bit as relevant as, as a painting. Um, but uh, that was when you decided you, you wanted, you set your sights on wanting to become a Disney animator. Well, you know, I, I never... I, I never thought that that could possibly ever happen. You know what I mean? I didn't think I had anywhere near the, and I didn't, <laughs> near the talent to, to do do a Bambi. Or I didn't really even understand animation, and I didn't know the names of any of the animators. I didn't. And so when I started working at Disney, uh, Ollie Johnson and all these names of people who had worked on Bambi uh, were they were like gods to me. You know? Yeah, but before we get to you working at Disney, you uh, you dropped out of high school in 1943 and you signed up with the Marine Corps because of yeah. World War II. Awesome. Yes, uh, 
they were, uh, and they had announced that uh, everybody, when you turned 18, you had to uh, sign up and register, register for the draft. But you know, and you didn't. You could tell them you wanted a, the Navy or Marine Corps, or Air Force or what, Air Corps. And uh, but you didn't know if you were going to get it or not. So I wanted to make sure I didn't. I didn't for some reason or other, I didn't want to go in the Army. So I uh, talked to, to two of my friends. We talked about it, uh, and the on a Sunday, and the next day we drove down to Detroit in his dad's car, and uh, we first. Uh, place we came to was the Marine Corps. We looked down and here's these Marines in their dress blues and, you know, so we said, let's, you know, let's try this. I said that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's, let's try this. And uh, we went in and uh, we had to sign, you know, fill out some stuff, and sign some papers and uh, they had to strip down and they gave you a towel to wrap around you. And they had a, a doctor there that gave you uh, a, a quick physical. And I remember, what is this little thing going around there? I don't know. I can't get rid of it. <laughs> That's all right. We're getting, we're getting you we all you. on this. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. You're not yeah. seeing anything? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I was, uh, I weighed 119 pounds. And I was five foot eight. So I was really skinny. And um, so they were, I was going through the physical thing and the, the uh, doctor says, okay, bend over and spread your cheeks. So I went. <laughs> <laughs> but for the audience, uh, Joe pulled the uh, uh, corners of his mouth and he bent over uh, <laughs> with his mouth open. <laughs> anyway, so I passed the physical and I took it to the, uh, the sergeant tough-looking old guy, and uh, he looks at that, and he looks at me, and I'm standing there with a towel wrapped around me, and he says, well, you're not exactly what we're looking for, but the, the doctor couldn't find anything wrong with you, so I guess you're in. And uh, so that's how I got in the Marine Corps. And did your buddies get in as well? Yes. my One got in, Dan Ewald. He was accepted. He was 18. And uh, another friend of mine, Kenny Slocum, uh, didn't pass. He had a slight heart murmur. So he was so mad. He, the next day he went down and uh, joined the Navy, and they took him the next day. He was gone within a few days, and we hang around. didn't get caught up for a couple of months. Wow. And, and so you, you went into the Marines and you saw action on Iwo Jima uh, in the yes. Pacific. And for, for the audience, Iwo Jima is a volcanic island north of Guam. It's about halfway between Guam and Tokyo. It's just this little spit of, of, of volcanic rock out in the middle of the Pacific, right? Yeah, it's, I think it's, it was, uh, I think it was five miles long. It was like eight square miles. I, yeah, it was eight uh, square miles. Was, yeah. And uh, one end was the volcano and yeah. uh, where the famous flag raising right. yeah, that's took place. The, uh, a very famous photo. Uh, I know yes. uh, you've you've uh, signed many a photo of that iconic image. I think some of our listeners may not uh, may not know Iwo Jima, but they do know that that iconic picture. Yes, the famous flag, the most famous picture of World War II. Yes, sir. Yeah. And it was funny, we were, 
had been dug in on the beach because we couldn't go inland because of the heavy fire for the first three days. And uh, we moved up to the next to the first airport and uh, I was digging in. We had to fill sandbags and dig these 105 uh, artillery houses, big one-ton guns. And, and I was digging away and this friend of mine says, hey, Hale, he said, look up on the mountain. There's some guys up there raising a flag, oh. looks like. And I said, oh, great. That sounds, I'm, I thought, gee, that's good because we won't have, we've taken it. And then I, I never looked up. I just kept digging. And so I missed the famous flag raising, <laughs> which now, took place. <laughs> Joe, Joe, what uh, what group were you in? What division? Were you in? Uh, I was in the 5th Marine Division. The 5th Marine Division of the Amphibious Corps. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and so you were, you were on Iwo Jima, you saw action there, uh, yeah. and then you got discharged in 1946? Well, I was, I, uh, oh, it wasn't for, was it 46? Yeah, I guess it was. Yeah, I guess it was. I was, uh, after Iwo, we lost so many men and we, and so much equipment. We were supposed to go to Guam and, and uh, train there. But we, they sent us all the way back to the Big Island of Hawaii, and we uh, retrained and re-equipped. And we were already, we were down at Hilo, and we were loading our ships, and we were on our way to invade Japan, which would have been a, a real disaster. And they uh, uh, dropped the bombs, atom bombs. So instead of going in as invasion troops, we went to uh, Japan and to uh, Nagasaki. And I was in Nagasaki for, I think, about four months. Wow. We went right where they, we saw where the uh, bomb had gone off and, and the whole city was just, the city wow. was just flattened. And there was a lot of Catholics, Japanese Catholics. And there was a huge Catholic church, a beautiful, it had been a beautiful place and it had just blown to pieces. You can still see it, it was a church, uh, but, a few miles from that was uh, a district where there were where they had the geisha houses, and when the bomb went off, it destroyed the church. But there was a little some hills between the the blast and the and the when the or the bomb went off, so the the bomb went over and destroyed everything except the geisha houses. So all the prostitutes were unsaved, were saved, and all the priests were destroyed. Wow. And we're saying, you know, God does work in mysterious ways. Yeah, wow. he certainly does. Holy mackerel. What, and, and so after you get out of the Marines, you, you got your high school diploma, uh, mm -hmm. from, from what I, I understand. Yeah, I took the, yeah, Dan and Ken and I were all, and they had gotten out just a little before I got out. And there was a teacher, Mabel Fox. She was one of our teachers and. She said, uh, I saw her on the street after I'd been home a few weeks. And she said, Joe, next Tuesday, I want you and Dan and Ken Slocum to be in my, meet me in my room at, in, in the high school building at five o'clock. I want you to make sure you're there. You're going to take your GED test. You got to have a high school diploma. So we went and sat down and she passed out these tests. And uh, she said, now, I got something to do for about an hour. So between the three of you guys, you ought to be able to figure this out. 
So we did, and we all passed with flying colors. So that's how I got my diploma. And then you went on to art school in Michigan, right? Yes, and we went to uh, uh, Saginaw. Saginaw, Michigan. But the and for six months, for one semester actually. But he was more of a landscape painter, and I wasn't really interested in that as much as uh, well. I, I was just didn't really know what I was interested in, but I knew I didn't want to do that. And, uh, you know, I had spent three years in the Pacific in, uh, in the beautiful tropical weather. And that December, a, uh, we had a big blizzard. It was, it was just before New Year's. It started the end of December and the first couple of days of January. Nothing moved in the town. And I thought, my God, I can't take this cold. So I packed up and got on the highway and I started hitchhiking towards Chicago. And uh, a truck driver pulled over and he, those days you could hitchhike, it was safe. And uh, he said, where are you going, son? I said, I'm going to uh, California. I'm gonna work for Disney. And I, where that came out, I, where it came from, I don't know. It just popped out of my mouth. <laughs> so I hitchhiked to California, and I went to I uh, I went to Chenard's and uh, Art Center, and they were both booked up. And uh, so I heard about Lucas Academy of Fine Arts. So I went there and uh, showed Theodore Lucas some of my stuff, uh, you know, things I had done. And he said, "Yeah, yeah, you uh, you can. We'll take you." So I went there for two and a half years. And and just for the audience, uh, Theodore, uh, now you, you pronounce it Lucas or Lu Lucas? Lucas. Lucas. Yeah, Theodore yeah. Lucas uh, was a, a, a very well-established portrait painter and landscape artist out here in Los Angeles. He was a plain air painter, and yes. he started this uh, academy, which actually um, uh, didn't close until, I think, 1990. Mm -hmm. And how was yeah. it going? How was it going to school there? It was very interesting because uh, a lot of the fellows that went there were worked for Pacific Outdoor Advertising, which that in those days they had billboards all over town, all over, you know, all over the country, really. And uh, he trained uh, uh, all the people for uh, uh, Pacific Outdoor Advertising. And then, and he did all of the, whenever a studio did a picture about, you know, Gauguin or whoever, some famous classic artist, and they needed a portrait of the, this artist on screen, did of like Olivia de Havilland or whoever. Uh, he, he could paint in any style. He was a fabulous, fabulous artist. And so he, he was able to uh, create paintings for the movies. Yeah, and so I, uh, you start off with, uh, Lucas, you started off with drawing skeletons. You started from the very basic bones in the body, and you had to learn all the, all the uh, muscles and the names of everything. And it was quite a, quite a, and then you started working from nude models and went on from there. Were, were there any other Disney artists that went through that academy? I think that uh, seemed like there was one, but I don't remember who it was now. Yeah, because a lot of, a lot of them went, through, went to Chenard, right? 
Yeah, most of them went to Chouinard, yeah. Which is now Cal Arts. Yeah. So anyway, after I finished at Lucas, I, uh, I uh, was working, uh, I, I, uh, even though I lived in the valley, not too far from Disney Studios, it never, I just thought, well, uh, they'll never hire me there. So I got a job at a silk screen shop in Culver City, and we did posters and wallpaper and all a whole bunch of stuff. And I worked there for about a year. And then one day my uh, car wouldn't, something was wrong with my car. It was an old used car. And I was lived about five miles from Disney. So I thought, what the hell, I'm gonna go. I just grabbed my portfolio and went over to Disney. And I walked into the office and uh, into the guard shack out in front and uh, talked to a really nice guy, a great guy. He was kind of the head of the security there. His name was O'Reilly. And I said, who do I, uh, is there anyone I can talk to about getting a job here? And he said, well, uh, do you uh, do you belong to the Screen Actors, the Screen Cartoonist Guild? And I said, no. And he said, well, you got to belong to uh, the Screen Cartoonist Guild because uh, this is a union shop. They won't hire you unless you belong to the Screen Cartoonist Guild. So I uh, said, well, I kind of started to pack up and leave. And he and uh, I said, well, I'm going to go over. I'll get. I'll join the Screen Cartoonist Guild. He said, well, no, you can't join the Screen Cartoonist Guild if you don't have a job at the studio. That, that, that's the famous catch-22 about it, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's that's, like, that's true. It's very true. You could yeah. they wouldn't hire you. <laughs> I, I, I was in the same boat many years later because you you couldn't get a job unless you were in the Screen Cartoonist Guild, but you couldn't get in the Screen Cartoonist Guild unless you had a job. So it was really about having a studio say, we want to hire this guy. Then they put you into the Screen Cartoonist that's Guild. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, uh, he said, well, here, let me make a phone call. He called Andy, Andy Ingman, and he said, uh, I heard him say on the phone, he said, I got it. There's a young fellow out here has a, is looking, he wants to show somebody his artwork. And uh, Andy was, again, didn't have anything to do at that particular time. So he said, well, send him on in. So I thought, great, I'll get to get inside the studio and see what it's really like and maybe see some real artists. So I went into Andy's office and uh, had my portfolio, which is right over there in the corner. And uh, <laughs> I never showed you that. I'll show you sometime. Anyway, uh, he looked through it and uh, he said, yeah, we're starting Peter Pan. And uh, he, he saw the, I could do, you know, uh, human type figures, which, you know, Peter Pan was a real boy. And, uh, he says, yeah, I think we could use you. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. He says, oh. and he told me about Peter Pan. And so I thought, oh my God. And, he, and they gave me a, sent me down at a desk and Johnny, uh, forget his name, came in and, and showed me how to do in-betweens, flipping the paper and drawing the... Was it John Lounsbury or? No. Uh, no. Uh, Johnny Bond? Johnny Bond. Johnny Bond, Johnny Bond. Johnny Bond. Yeah. So he gave me a drawing test, and I passed that okay. So uh, <laughs> the rest is history. And uh, and so your first picture was uh, Peter Pan? First picture was, uh, well, we worked a little bit on uh, Alice in Wonderland. We oh, just finishing that. Finishing it off, yeah. Yeah. And then we, you know, in those days, you would do, uh, 
between features, they always had a, a bunch of uh, shirts, you know, Mickey cartoons and the six-minute shirt subjects with Donald sure. Duck, Goofy, or those things. So you did, we did, a, I don't know, 10 or 12 of those between each feature at that time. Yeah. So that's how I, you know, so I started off doing, really doing uh, Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. And, and and then you went into layout, is that right? Uh, no, I, I stayed in uh, uh, animation and I, uh, Kimball, Ward Kimball uh, was doing some of these, uh, oh. Uh, uh, the, uh, it's tough to be a bird and. Yeah, those uh, things. Uh, uh, toot whistle plunk or uh, whistle yeah. plunk, yeah. And uh, so I worked for Ward, and he I, I, he he liked the way I drew. So uh, I worked for, with Ward. We became good friends. And uh, then one day I thought I was working away, and I thought this really isn't Disney. This the Kimball type stuff. I wanted to do the feature type, and. Uh, so I went to, uh, uh, I was talking to Don Griffith about it, and he said, well, listen, why don't you uh, go into layout? He said, you can, you know, he said, I'll, he can work with me. So I went and talked to Ken Peterson, and I said, you know, Ken, I've been working on the Kimball-type stuff, and that's not really Disney feature, and that's not going to last forever. I think it's kind of a fad right now. And I said, you know, we've got the nine old men, and then we, that are great, great, great animators and then we got another next to the nine old men we got about 12 or 15 what they call shorts animators which were as good as a really damn near as good as the nine old men and then we had the uh top uh, really professional uh, assistant animators that worked for the nine the nine old men and the other nine old men so it looked i thought she's i'll be a uh, doing cleanup here for the rest of my life. So I said, I'd like to try layout. And I talked, told him about talking to Don. And so they said, yeah. So then that's how I got, I went into layout on, uh, I think it was Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, it was Sleeping Beauty. That was my first layout. And, uh, and, and that was a very stylized picture too, because yeah. you, you were mentioning with Ward Kimball during that time period in the 50s, you had the uh, UPA style cartoons, which were very, yeah. gra very, very, very graphic cartoons like Mr. Magoo and things like that. And it was uh, uh, Ward gravitated to those new styles. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But but it was it was a departure from uh, the sort of classic Disney animation. Yes. Yeah. And uh, so you, you did lay out on Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, I uh, used to used to walk around a lot, and I always wanted to see what was going on in different departments. So I was walking on the third floor one day on my lunch hour, and I uh, looked in the room, and there's a fellow in there that was doing these really interesting paintings on, I think, Lady and the Tramp, some backgrounds. And uh, I walked in, we got talking, and it turned out it was it was new. This Ivan Earl, and I was looking at some of the things he was doing, and I said, you know, you're going to make a lot of people envious when they see your work. And uh, anyway, we became real good friends. And uh, so uh, when he was doing, uh, when they put him on, on Sleeping Beauty, he was doing the uh, forest where the, uh, 
the prince, princess meets the prince for the first time where she's dancing with the little animals and singing and all that. Uh -huh. And it was being laid out by uh, Colin Campbell. And, uh, but it wasn't in the Ivan Earl style. Well, Ivan's style was easy to me. It was e easy to do. And so I was doing some also. And he, so he said, I want, he went to whoever and said, I want Hale to do sequence eight for me. I want him to do everything. And so he called me in and told me what he wanted me to do. And I said, great. And, uh, so I took all of uh, Colin Campbell, which were beautiful layouts, and I didn't even think about keeping them. I threw them all in the trash. <laughs> and uh, so I, anyway, that was my first uh, picture. Was uh, Sleeping Beauty was the the first one that you were fully in layout. Yeah, well, I did all the layouts in that particular sequence. And yeah. I worked with Don. I worked in a room with Don Griffith. Uh -huh. And uh, we became a real good friend. And, and you, and, and did you go right on to 101 Dalmatians from there? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, when did you start working on the Wonderful World of Disney material? Or was that sort of happening in between while you guys were working on the features? Well, I was working with Will after Sleeping Beauty. I went to work with uh, Wilford Jackson mm -hmm. and Dick Humor, and we were doing a TV show. <clears throat> we did a couple of TV shows, and then Wilford Jackson had a heart attack, and he retired. And so they, uh, I started working for Ham Lusk. I worked for Ham on. Uh, uh, a lot of uh, wonderful world of world, yeah, wonderful world of color. For about ten years, I worked on TV little show. Ranger and yeah, little ranger type of nature. Joe, did you have much in the way of interaction at all with Walt Disney? Did you meet him? Uh, talk with him? Well, I was I was in a lot of story meetings. <laughs> well, it was a story meeting with with Wilford Jackson and uh, and uh, Dick Humor. Uh, putting together some shorts and making a, t a wonderful world of color TV show out of it. And uh, they got to a point where uh, uh, they, Walt didn't like what he saw. And so without really thinking, I said, why don't we do so-and-so? And so I gave him the, came up with my idea and Walt said, yeah, I think that'll work. And then he got up and left. <laughs> and uh, the next day, Les Clark came down and I was working away. And Les says, hey, listen, Joe, I want to tell you something. And I don't take it the wrong way because I'm, I'm, this is for your best interest. When you're in a meeting with Walt and you have an idea, save it till the, after he's gone and then tell the director about it. Because if you... If you had come up with a really dumb idea, Walt would have just ripped you to pieces. And he said, <laughs> so, and he said, I'm telling you this for your own good. And I knew he was. Yeah, so yeah. I was in a lot of meetings with Walt, and I, uh, but I always sat at one side and I'd take notes or whatever. And, and uh, I think once he said, uh, Hale, you're uh, being awful quiet. And I said, well, I, everybody, you know. <laughs> That's awesome. I love those teachable moments that that you uh, that you had there because you know that's a great lesson in life. Actually, it's a great life lesson. Yeah, 
Yeah. It's it's always nice to have somebody give you a heads up on things like that too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, and I knew that I I knew that Les Clark was telling me this for my own good. It wasn't there was nothing devious about it. He was just saying, "Hey, Hale, That's if you awesome. want to stay here, you better learn to keep your mouth shut." <laughs> So, Joe, uh, uh, I think, uh, you know, you, you spent a lot of time in the animation department. Did you ever get involved with any of the Disneyland projects in the 60s? Did you ever? I know some of the yeah. artists would get pulled on to things yes. for a few weeks. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the reason Sleeping Beauty <clears throat> took so long to make <clears throat> was that Walt was really getting into Disneyland the design that was getting ready to open. And so people were doing all sorts of odd jobs. Uh, we had to design trash cans and shoulder patches and all that. And uh, Ken Anderson was in the right across the hall from me at that time. And uh, there was a, I don't know if you remember, there was a, uh, like a little, uh, not much bigger than a big swimming pool. It was a circle and there was a pirate ship five-eighth scale pirate ship floating in the middle of a beautiful... Yeah, down at, at Disneyland. Uh, it, was yeah. off, it was off to the side of the castle uh, where Fantasyland is. Yeah. And, and, and that pirate ship was a little restaurant. Originally, it was called Chicken of the Sea. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was sponsored by Chicken of the Sea Tuna. Yeah. And Ken Anderson had a, was doing a lot of design for the park, and he was... They needed it in a hurry. So he came over and he said, hey, Joe, I got a uh, project for you. And he said, I, I, you need to, I need to have uh, uh, benches and a eating area and, you know, a little uh, area for, the, for people to sit and rest and eat, and, you know, because we need something around the pirate ship. So I did some benches kind of based on coral reefs. And uh, there was a... Uh, uh, skull. I, I, I put the skull rock in there, and uh, then later that was all taken out. I think the skull rock is still there, but it was there for a number of years. But that's yeah, the, they I they ripped they, they ripped all that out during the big Fantasyland uh, yes. uh, makeover. Yeah, actually, the pirate ship was getting uh, starting to rot away, and I guess they had to. It's too bad. It was a beautiful ship. Yeah, a, a portion of that ship is actually in the Peter Pan Flights ride now. Oh, really? Uh, when, when they when they did a uh, refresh of the Peter Pan's flight, they actually re uh, during that whole uh, uh, refurbishing of, of Fantasyland that they did, uh, oh, they yeah. took part of that pirate ship and, and used it in Peter Pan's flight. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> So uh, that, that that brings us along, and I think, I, I, Al John, I, I, I'm so anxious to talk about the Black Cauldron because this year is the 35th anniversary. Joe Hale was the producer of that movie. He was at the top of the top of the hill on that uh, on that movie. And uh, and Joe, I know you've been talking a lot about it in in recent months with interviews and stuff like that. But but can you tell tell our audience? when you first got involved with it? Because it was quite a bit before the movie actually ever materialized. Uh, yeah, I was working on, uh, I had been working in, on live action films like uh, Peach Dragon and uh, Bed Knobs and Broomsticks and uh, 
the black hole. The black hole. Yeah, yeah. I had been working on live action for about ten years, and we had, the last one I worked on was uh, Watch. Watcher in the Woods, and we finished that. And so they, I needed a new assignment, so they put me at, <coughs> on the uh, uh, story. <laughs> Development. The black hole. The, the cauldron. Yeah. Oh, <clears throat> I had a room, <clears throat> room by myself, and I like, and I really enjoyed it because I'd been ten years with live action, which is really a lot of fun, but it's a lot of hassle too. So anyway, uh, I would sit in there and kind of imagine the boy climbing into the castle, and so I was working on that sequence. And really enjoying it. And uh, there was, I know there had been a lot of problems between the new animators and the old animators. And uh, I didn't want to get involved in that at all. And uh, so I was working by myself, really. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Can you talk about it? It's sort of that new wave of animators that were coming in from Cal Arts and the nine old old men and some of the people that had been there for decades were starting to get towards retirement, right? Yeah. And I think... was there friction between the two groups, or did they well, just? Don, I think Don Don Bluth and his group had left, had left by that time, yeah. so there was a lot of just problems. A lot of chaos, I think, right? Yeah, because a lot, yeah. people didn't know what to do, and there were so, some some experienced people had left uh, that were trying to bring those new guys in and uh, get them up to speed. Yeah, yeah. So anyway. Uh, one of the animators came up and he's and he said uh, a lot of the animators they know about your work and they we would like you to we want to go to Ron and have you take over the picture from Art Stevens and I said whoa 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 wait a minute I said Art I I said I spent several years working with Art in the same room with that we're good friends and I said there's no way. I'm going to take over his job. What was Art actually producing the show, or yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, okay. So he was he was the producer initially. He was in charge, and, and Art and I were very close friends. Mm-hmm. So anyway, finally, uh, Ed Hansen had heard from Ron Miller that they wanted me to. I don't know if some animators had gone to Ron or what. Anyway, they uh, Ron called me up to his office with Ed Hansen and uh, asked me if I would like to take over as producer on the Black Cauldron. And I said, well, no, not really. I said, I'm happy in story. And I said, I I don't want to get involved in all the hassle that's going on. Yeah, the politics. I don't blame you. I said, uh, uh, you know, I really don't want to do it. And so then a week or so went by, and then I got called up again and given the same pitch. And finally, he said, "Look, you got to." He said, "I'm not. Somebody's going to take over the picture. You're, you're not replaced. Art Stevens is going to be replaced. So either you know you take it or somebody else is going to take it." So I thought, "Well, Jesus, <laughs> if they want me, I'll, I didn't have much choice. I just felt. Yeah. So that's how I got involved with it." And did Art Stevens retire at that point? Yeah, he did right yeah. after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, uh, and so now as a producer, were you still doing uh, story development and uh, were you doing any artwork early on uh, during the development phase? Uh, no, I was just, I was just doing story. Okay. Yeah. And, I was writing uh, it down. Right. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't storyboards at that point. No, I wasn't boarding. Yeah. You were, you were coming up with the script. So to speak. I did the, uh, I, the first one I did was the, uh, Taryn uh, going into the climbing up and going into the castle where he's captured. You wrote that sequence? Yeah. You worked on that? Yeah, I, worked, I wrote that sequence. That's fantastic. And, and, and then it started to pick up steam uh, at, at that point. Do you, know what yeah. year that, do you know what year it was when they made you the producer? It was not, 1980, I think. 1980. Yeah. So it's still a couple more years of development uh, before uh, things really got, they were still, the most of the, the department was still finishing off Fox and the Hound. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And um, so uh, talk a little bit about uh, once the uh, production team started coming on to the project, because you, you were instrumental in bringing Andreas Deja in. Yes. Uh, yeah, uh, we were, I had, uh, we hadn't really settled on any of the characters yet. Designed. Uh, designed. And so uh, Ed Hansen came up with a portfolio and showed me, uh, he said, this is a, Andreas Deja, the young German boy, and I and I looked at his work, and it was like he had that Disney DNA. He, his style was the Disney style. It was really weird. So I said, "Gee, hire this kid, you know." And he said, "Well, he's in Germany." And I said, "Well, you know, bring him over." So anyway, that's how uh, Andreas got involved. Was, and, and, and Phil Niblink was already there because he came in yes. uh, from, from Cal Arts. Yeah. Uh, and, Phil and, Niblink, yeah. And, and Glenn Keane didn't really work on the picture much, did he? I don't know. Uh, I think Glenn may have skipped over the Black Cauldron. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, because he was instrumental, yeah. certainly, in Fox and the Hound. Yes. Yeah. But Phil Niblink and Andreas were, were the two supervising animators. Yeah. Yeah. And um, uh, so, you know, talk, talk some more about uh, what it was like uh, uh, getting that picture together, because there was a lot of uh, issues. Well, yeah, it was a kind of the whole thing was just kind of a, a mess. There was uh, one group wanted to go one way and another group wanted to go another way. And, and we didn't. We had bits and pieces, and, uh, and uh, my job was, I can remember, is, uh, the frustration of it is just trying to get some sort of, we, I knew we had to get the picture out. It was costing a lot of money. And uh, if I didn't, you know, I had to get it going because we were, the animators were coming off Fox and the Hound, and, and I didn't want to see anybody laid off. So it was trying to get this kind of thing organized. And I, that part of it is kind of a nightmare to me. Yeah. And, uh, and the story, too, was difficult because you're dealing with this series of uh, fantasy books. So there was like five, five books in the series. Yeah, that's the first thing I did was read the books. Yeah. And then trying to 
But it, it, actually, being the producer of that picture was not a very pleasant experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think it's important for the audience to realize that in the middle of production on The Black Cauldron, the studio itself, the whole Walt Disney Company, was in the process of a potential takeover. Yeah. Uh, and there was a financier from Wall Street who thought the company was worth more in pieces sold off uh, yeah. and and so that that caused chaos in the board uh, Roy Disney had resigned from the board um, uh, and then engineered uh, the White Knights the Hunt Brothers from Texas to come in to take a stake in the company to help save the company and all this is swirling around while yeah. uh, this group of artists is trying to, to, to make a movie yeah, and we had lost a lot of our top animators, you know, and uh, <laughs> it, it really was. I mean, it was a studio in transition at that point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and then partway into the production, you had all these new executives coming in that most of them had worked over at Paramount. You had Michael Eisner yeah. and Jeffrey Katzenberg. Frank yeah. Wells had been an executive at Warner Brothers. And yeah. all these people come in and they didn't know uh, their animation from their elbow. That's right. Uh, yeah. So the whole thing was just, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how I survived it, but I managed to somehow. <laughs> well, you know, it was trial by fire because it was my first picture. I came in uh, in 1984 at the very bottom of the Black Cauldron. I was an in-betweener in the effects department. Mm -hmm. So I, I remember what was going on at the studio at that time. And what were your thoughts when you were hearing some of this stuff? Well, I was busy. I was trying to concentrate on picking up the pieces of the story and and making a picture, you know, getting the, I, I just wanted to get a picture made. And uh, so it was, uh, I don't remember, I I know there was all, every day was a hassle, seems like. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't I, imagine, I couldn't imagine being around during that time with all that stuff going on. And uh, and you, Mr. Hale, dealing with the politics uh, involved with, you know, the new management coming in, one direction going one way, you going the other way, and you being producer having to reel in all of these these cats in order to get this film made. I, yeah. I couldn't imagine the, I mean, just the amount of work you had to, to, to pour into it just to get through the finish line. And then also, see, after uh, Don Bluth had left with the... the bunch of animators uh they were they didn't want to make that get, get any more frustration going with the animators so they sort of said that you guys are this is your studio you're going to be in charge uh so you know do whatever you feel good doing and they wanted to do I'd go down on the A wing and to see one of the animators and be seeing that you'd see somebody standing on his head and somebody seeing how long he could stand on his head <laughs> and I, so they were just the, the production was <laughs> going nowhere uh, I kept getting the budget 
slip every week and be a hundred thousand, another hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and nothing was being done. And I was trying to, what do they say? Gather wet cats, herd, herding herd, cats, herding, herding cats, herding cats. Yes, yeah. absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so the production obviously did get going and it did get done. Uh, yeah. but, but then you had Jeffrey Katzenberg come in on top of the studio side of yeah. the business. And, uh, and he, uh, he had his own viewpoint on the story and he, can you talk a little bit about that and some of the funny things that happened along the way, because he didn't understand <laughs> animation at that point. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, he came in and and Katzenberg was uh, he was there was a book I don't know if you ever heard of it. It's called What's, What Makes Sammy Run. It was a uh, yeah, Bud, yeah. Bud Schulberg. Okay, it's about a young man in Hollywood and how he <laughs> maneuvered around and and managed to take credit for things he didn't do and and didn't take blame for anything that went wrong. And that was kind of Katzenberg. In fact, a, a funny story is going back to Iwo Jima. We were, I had that book. Uh, that's where I read it was, it was on that ship and going to Iwo and I read uh, what makes Sammy run. And then I gave the book to somebody else and uh, he loaned it to a guy named Sam Baranja from Vermont. And we were on the beach and the bullets are flying all over the place and zipping by and and uh, Sam crawls up to the guy that loaned him the book and says, hey, here, I want to return your book. And everybody thought that was a, a hilarious in the middle of this. <laughs> he, he wanted to return it. The battle of this of world. Yeah. He wanted to and, return it just in case, huh? He said, yeah. <laughs> you want, I, yeah. No, no time like the present. I want to give you your book back. That is anyway. interesting. You know, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so anyway, Katzenberg, yeah, he didn't really understand animation. and But he wanted, Roy came back at the same time, and Roy wanted a job there. He wanted, he, he, he sort of engineered getting Katzenberg and Eisner back. And he wanted a job there, and he talked to me about it. And he said, you know, Joe, he said, I, I want to get involved in this the studio again. And he said, I'd like to get a job here. He says, you know, I've been, I I come in every day, but I don't, uh, I don't get a paycheck and I don't have a job. And he said, and he said, you know, Katzenberg doesn't want competition or something. Anyway, he, they didn't care much for each other. I don't think. So uh, he said, uh, you know, uh, I'd like to work with you and uh, help me get, you know, back in, in the studio. So that was, I thought I was great. Yeah, so I, I, I was going to say, he be, he eventually became, he was vice chairman of the company, but he was chairman of the animation department. He really yeah. saved, saved the animation department. Exactly. Anyway, uh, so we set up a screening for uh, Eisner and Katzenberg. And uh, what's the guy that was killed of? Uh, uh, Frank Wells. Frank, Frank Wells, Wells. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we ran the picture. We the got work, work reels, right? The work, yeah. And uh, it was at night. It was at, 
seven o'clock, I think we started running it. And about a third of the way through, Frank Wells wasn't there. So anyway, they started it anyway. So he comes in with a big, huge bag of popcorn. And they're talking, the movie's going, they're talking and eating popcorn. And I thought, oh God, I wanted to stop and start over. And they, no, 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 let's just keep it running. And uh, anyway, uh, Katzenberg said, uh, the next day he said, Daddy, cut 10 minutes out of the picture. And I said, well, what, 10 minutes? You know, said, you want to look at it again and show me what don't you like about it? He said, just cut 10 minutes out of it. So I got with Roy and Roy would, we tried to figure out where we could cut. So we, we'd meet every morning and run it on a movie all on the weed. And Roy liked to have a few drinks at night. <laughs> and being with our heads together on the movie all the, uh, and after he had had a night of drinking, <clears throat> that was a <laughs> job in itself. But anyway, uh, so we cut, I think it was two, two and a half minutes, and we thought, well, that's, that's not hurting it too much. So we called, set up a meeting with Jeff, and he comes into the sweat box, and he said, uh, we're getting ready to run it. And he said, uh, did you, is this, now, did you cut 10 minutes out of it? And I said, uh, Roy, I think, said, no, we just cut two and a half, about two and a half. He said, I said 10, and he left. And here's what he was doing, according to Roy. He said, he wants to let me know he's my boss. And I said, well, he, yeah. And he said, well, you know, he has a contract, and I don't even have a paycheck. So we got our heads together, and we cut a few more minutes out of it. And then Jeff Kastenberg brought in a bunch of young guys. I don't know where they came from. And he cut 12 and a half minutes, I believe. And it was never the same picture again. It was, yeah. it's too bad. But you know what? It still, it's still uh, I think, uh, held up very well. Uh, uh, Roger Ebert gave it a good review when it first Oh, yeah, I got some. Actually, I got some. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, uh, and I I rewatched it last week uh, uh, because I hadn't seen it in a while, and uh, I thought it played very well. You know, uh, all yeah. things considered, with, with everything that went on to get that movie made, I thought it played very well. Yeah, and there was a you know, it cost I think it was uh, well they said twenty five million. Yeah, that's what that's what they told everybody, but it was probably a lot more than that. Well, they, yeah. then I heard later they said it cost seventy million, yeah. but then I had a good friend in uh, Keith Cheney in the project. He ran the projection department. He told me later. He said we were told to unload all of our charges onto the Black Cauldron because. They're going to write it off as a loss. So all the departments, studio overhead. all the studio overhead that had budgets that they were trying to make look better, charged it all to the Black Cauldron because they were going to write it off anyway. So yeah, that's I mean, people I mean, that say it cost $70 million, well, that was 
you know, creative bookkeeping, really. Yes, yeah, that wasn't that wasn't the real cost of the movie, no. and, and and certainly uh, with the new management that came in, Jeffrey and uh, and Michael and those guys, uh, they they I think they looked at the Black Cauldron as this isn't our movie, our movie. We don't care about it, uh, and they didn't want to put any more into it than than was already spent. Yeah, I remember talking to Card Walker about that, and uh, I said, you know, it, it was a better movie before they got their hands on it. And he said, I, I, he said, well, you know, do you ever think about the fact that they might not have wanted it to be successful in the first place? Because of Ron, they didn't want Ron Miller to have. After they had booted him out, they didn't want him to have a successful last release. Yeah. Absolutely, and I and I think that the the real victim during that period was this movie because yeah. it, it got no marketing support or anything when it was released. And I, I think the funny story too was that Jeffrey asked you for the outtakes uh, on yeah. the movie, right? Yeah, yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, that's it. You want to look at there. We don't have outtakes. Well, yeah, I mean, if for the audience, uh, um, uh, when you have a live action movie, you're usually shooting with multiple cameras. You have different oh, yeah. angles on a scene. So you have a lot of footage to pull from yeah. to do editing work. With yeah. animation, you don't have that. You're, no. you're animating scenes that have been laid out uh, in a sequence and and there's no extra, so to speak. There's yeah, no there's not another angle or whatnot. And Jeffrey was asking for the outtakes uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> so that he could go into editing and see if he could recut the picture. Yeah. That is amazing to me. That is absolutely an amazing comment. To me. But yeah. here's here's one thing I I, I want to know, sir. And maybe Dave, you can chime in. But I've always wanted to find out that you talked, Joe, about the editing, the taking out of the ten minutes. Do you know where that footage is? I think there's tons of Disney fans that are like myself who watch the Black Cauldron, love the movie. As Dave says, it still holds up. Where is the footage? And do you think if they find it, would we ever be able to see the footage that was? It wasn't totally animated, was it? Well, uh, uh, yeah, some of that footage went real. Well, I think was uh, still in. yeah, some were it was in story sketch, some was oh. rough animation, some was cleaned up animation, some was dailies, color dailies. Yeah, some was already in color. Yeah, yeah. Gosh. I would and, love to uh, see that. So, I mean, I. Well, you know, the funny thing some is, were, some were in the vaults. There, all that footage is laying somewhere, but. But, you know, the, the funny thing is, is that over the years, I've had people reach out to me and say, you know, where's the missing 12 and a half minutes? And I don't think people realize it wasn't just a 12 and a half minute chunk. Uh, it was bits and pieces from mm-hmm. throughout the whole film to kind of yeah. tighten it up and get it down to a certain running time. <clears throat> well, that, right? well, that's a, that's another yeah. question that I, that for you, that's for you guys, because. Was Katzenberg just really just hell bent on keeping the runtime super short? Because the movie at, uh, it runs a hundred and twenty. No, I'm sorry, like uh, eighty minutes, something like that. Eighty How, minutes. So was he just really uh, hell bent on keeping it tight like that, or was there absolutely no wiggle room whatsoever? He he said in his mind, animation needs to be 
this this amount? I I think partly they they wanted to make it less scary for little kids because when we had we had uh, audience reaction screenings uh, at different points of the picture, and uh, there would always you know they would invite people from all around Burbank to come in and bring their kids to see a Disney movie on the lot. And uh, I was always there. And uh, there was always <laughs> several mothers taking their screaming kids up, up the aisle and out of the theater. <laughs> well, you talk so about it. Yeah. They wanted to make it less scary. They wanted to make it for, uh, you know, more of a, a kid's picture. Right. And, and and the original intent was to actually age up the animation a little bit and scare the teenagers, right? Yeah. Well, that was the whole idea behind the, uh, when we made the film that I had heard was that they wanted to make a film that would appeal to teenagers because uh, uh, teenagers wouldn't be caught dead in a Disney picture at that time. We were making these silly, you know. Yeah. And and the G rating was also the kiss of death for the movie exhibitors, for oh, the yeah. theaters, right? Because yeah, they found yeah. if they had a G rated movie, they they'd fill a couple of matinees, but they wouldn't bring people in into That's the evening right. shows. Yeah. So yeah, that, and, and movies were Hollywood was going through a change. Tastes had, had changed. And, and Black Cauldron was the first PG animated Disney film to be released, right? That's right. Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. That's amazing. Well, speaking of a little bit scary, you know, the Horn King is a is a great is a great villainous figure. He's super dark, and I personally enjoy him. But um, what was it like? Maybe if you could remember talk uh, doing that type of uh, character design with a with a I guess at that point, relatively young, uh, Tim Burton. You guys remember working with Tim Burton at all in that in that film? What your thoughts were? Yeah, well, yeah, Tim. Uh, I didn't know. Someone said we Tim Burton has really got a, a unique uh, design ability, style. style. Yeah. He said, you should look at his stuff. So I said, well, okay, bring him up. And I put him in a room with somebody else. I don't remember who it was. And uh, he started designing characters for the cauldron. But they were so, they were great pictures, but they were so different from Disney that, uh, like I said to him, I said, well, you know, I I love your work, but... uh, you should have been here on day one and I'd give you a hand to do the picture. You could have done it whatever way you wanted, but uh, you know, this is not the Disney Disney style and it won't, those characters won't work in the story we've, that we're working on. So, he did have influence on the Horn King design though. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. He had, a, yeah, he had an influence. Yes. He yeah. did. That's very cool. And uh, Joe, I'm just curious, uh, what what do you uh, remember? I mean, do you have a fond memory from the the Black Cauldron production at all? 
a, a particular no. incident? You don't have any fond memories, huh? No. <laughs> well, no, he, 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 enjoyed his work. he enjoyed his work in story. And he was great at, he was a great story person, very, very, very creative. And he really wanted to stay in story and contribute to the story. And I think maybe uh, the storyline would have been better if he had remained in story instead of having to go in management, which he did not want to do at all. And then when Kassenberg came in, then it was like two heads <laughs> bashing yeah. against yeah. each other, and Joe would not sit back and take any crap off Jeffrey. Sure. <laughs> Therefore, Jeffrey hated Joe, yeah. and the feeling was probably mutual. But, you know, Jeffrey I, wanted everybody to recognize him as the head, and uh, he knew everything and do it my way or get out of the way. And Joe, 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 and he just locked horns. And that was it. <laughs> well, we were in a meeting one day and he was talking about how he cut three and a half minutes out of uh, uh, what the uh, Spielberg's first the space movies. Uh, a Close Encounters? Yeah. And uh, uh, what was the one with... Uh, oh, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I can't think of it. I'll think of it later anyway. It sort of indicated that uh, where's the one where Steven Spielberg was? Yeah, was it ET? Wait, was that Al John? Was it was that ET before he before he left uh, Paramount? ET? No, it was after. Uh, Not Schindler's List. No. No. No, no, no. Well, anyway. Yeah. Anyway, and I sort of called him on it. Said, "You mean you think those pictures? These were." Real successful, you know, like Star. Yeah, it was Star Wars and uh, no, that that was Lucas. Lucas, yeah, yeah. that's the one. I meant Lucas. Oh. You meant Lucas. Yeah. Anyway. And go ahead, finish this. You called Katzenberg on this three and a half minute cut. What happened? Yeah. Well, he got upset because uh, you challenged him. I challenged him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think he. It sounded sounds to me like he just wanted to let everyone know that he was the boss. Yeah, no, and, and, and that yeah. was always, and that was always the case throughout Jeffrey's career is that he was always constantly uh, in search of the accolades. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that goes yeah. back to your story, Joe, about the uh, you know what makes um, oh that that book you were talking about. What makes well, Sammy well, well, run? Yeah, what, what makes, makes Sammy run? run. That's yeah. right. It goes back to that book yeah. once again. You know, I get it. Um, I don't know if you, I don't know, Dave, we're at that point where we have some questions from our audience. If we, I was good. Before we do that, okay. we, we do have a couple of questions uh, from our listeners that they've sent in. But Joe, I did want to touch on the music uh, oh, yes. because Al, the great Alma Bernstein did the score for the Black Cauldron. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and where it was recorded and what it was like working with Alma Bernstein? Oh, yeah, he was, you know, very professional. He came in and we we had, uh, the assistant directors had taken bits and pieces of different scores from different movies, different, uh, and we had a score behind it when, you know, as we were making it. Sure. And he didn't want to see it with that score. And I said, well, just, you know, it'll kind of give you a feeling because some of the music you'll find is, music you've written for other pictures. And he said, oh, okay, go ahead. And he, he ran it. And, uh, but anyway, 
Yeah, he uh, liked it very much. And he brought this girl over from uh, England. If you remember in the score, there's a strange sound. Yeah, yeah. That, for for the bobble, right? Yeah. That, yeah. And she had uh, some kind of a... Oh, the, the theremin. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. A theremin, yes. Yeah, yes. She, she did the theremin sounds. I love yes. that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, he was... He, he did a really good job. And one of the things that bothered me when Katzenberg was cutting the damn thing was he was cutting uh, uh, some of his music that I liked out of it also, and which didn't help. Was it decided early on, Joe, that this film wasn't going to be a musical, you know, the musical adaptation? Because Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I just always assumed that, you know, we'd have a... How about the uh, how about the, the the special effects? You know, I, I understand, Dave, because you were you were so involved in the effects, just like uh, you know Joe was for for many years over there at Disney. The visual effects was it the first time Disney utilized that uh, electronic um, animation, computerized animation, and and was it decided early on to use that experimental type of animation in this film? Uh, no, that in fact the uh, computer animation kind of came along after the picture was started. And the only uh, computer animation we really used was uh, for the boat when they were escaping from it. The, the boat and also uh, and the, 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 prin the princess's bobble that followed yeah. her around. Uh, I remember we did that on a, it was done on an HP desktop. And, uh, and then in the effects department, we had to tape the printouts onto animation paper. It's amazing. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was rather yeah. antiquated, but it worked. Yeah. It worked. I have to yeah. say, yeah. Go ahead, Joe. Speaking of Elmer, let me show you something real quick here. Okay. Joe, Joe is now picking up his iPad and he's moving <laughs> yeah. it he's to show us, us something on his wall, and we're getting over to it. Up oh, and oh. here we are. It is. Can you see it? No, you got to lower it. I think uh, we're seeing only part of a photograph. Uh, nope, but now I'm seeing two frames. Uh, the edges are two frames. Right. I think you got to raise it up. Oh, there, Joe with his bolo on, his there Mickey is. Mouse bolo. And Elmer. And, and oh. move it over just a little bit further to the. Yep, there you go. Now we see it. Yep. Nice. It's Joe and Alma Bernstein. What a wonderful thing! I Look love that. Joe, Joe's got the baton in his hand. Elmer's got a big smile. Uh, what that must have? Where was the recording done, Joe? Was that done in Los Angeles or London? No, it was done at. Uh, uh, I think the, it was Universal. At, at uh, one of the Universal stages. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, I, I think at this point, uh, why don't we go to a couple listener questions, Al, John? All right. You've got them. Let's do it. Skull Rock Podcast. Answers your email. All right, Joe. So we've got this uh, question from Just Telling Guests. I think that's how I pronounce it. I'm sorry if I butcher your name. But he goes, who brought the... Um, Pride in Chronicles onto the radar at Disney Animation, and what aspect of the final film in the Black Cauldron are you most proud of? So, so when when were the uh, when were the books acquired at the studio? Do you know? Uh, from what I understand, is Don Duckwall's wife worked in the volunteer work in the library 
and she discovered the books and brought them home. And Don uh, Duckwall, who was uh, in was manager, he yeah, well, he was a production manager, wasn't he? For, yeah, and uh, yeah, and uh, he brought them in and showed them to uh, Wooly, and Wooly called Frank and Nolly up and they and built and they that's how it they got started at the studio and they bought the rights they the bought studio. the rights yeah huh. okay and uh uh the second part of that question al john was uh what part joe are you most proud of from oh, uh, for the black cauldron well i i don't know i i liked it all actually uh I think you're proud. You're you're proud of getting the movie done, <laughs> right? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's an accomplishment. Yes. yes. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, honestly, it took a marine, a a, a right. combat hardened marine, to get this movie done because of all of the stuff swirling around that had nothing to do with the movie right. uh, oh, yeah. that was going on at the time. Yeah, I mean, believe, you have no idea. <laughs> yeah, that that's real pro- project I really management. Have a little bit of an idea. I was I was so uh, low on the totem pole at that time, but I could see it going on. <laughs> bubbling the bubble, the bubbling yeah. cauldron. Yes. Well, Joe, um, I want to thank you so much for being part of the show uh, and coming on as our guest and having your lovely wife, Beverly, there. You guys have been married for now, uh, I want to say, almost 70 years. No. No? 60? 60 years? How how long? We got got married in 1965. Oh, in 65. Okay. Uh, I thought, I thought you guys were married uh, in, in the early 50s. No. How old do I look? No, I was no. a kid. Oh. Well, yeah, you look fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the lovely Beverly, you, you raised two sons. You had a 40, you had a more than 40-year career. At Disney? Oh, his 40-year career, yeah. Yeah, and, and and you've been married over 50 years. Wow. Yeah. I mean, holy mackerel. Yeah. You know, Joe, before I let you go, and Dave, I'm, I'm sorry, I've got to ask yeah. this one more question because Spencer sure, is, like, sure. pinging me on Facebook. Uh, Spencer Wright would like to know, Joe, regarding an animated Disney film, can you please explain what the role of layout artist is and what your role was in – the Black Cauldron, or, or how your role as a layout, layout artist uh, was different than uh, Evan Earle's uh, role in, in animation. Evan Earle? That was Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, I mean, sleep, how I, sleep, he that's right. Out on Sleeping well, Beauty? That's or? right. Sleeping, yeah, Sleeping Beauty. He was referencing Sleeping Beauty there. Oh, well, anyway, what a layout artist does is you work. That's a, one of the reasons I really enjoyed layout was you work with the director and you have a lot to do with staging and you have a lot to do with the story. And you take the, uh, you work with a director and you draw the background and you draw the characters in the background. And for instance, if you're doing a a long uh, room and a character comes through a door and walks across the stage and picks something up and goes out another door. You draw the layout. It's all done in pencil. You have the uh, drawing of the door open and closed and open and the character walking through and picking up something and you design whatever the character picks up. And in other words, you draw the picture 
and the animator takes your that layout and your drawings of the characters and they animate the characters and then it's shot in as a screen test in uh, test camera in black and white and you have the whole picture the whole scene animated in pencil with the mm. And then you draw on the back. Yeah, and, and in some sense, you're you're a cinematographer when you're in the yes, last that's department. It, that's you're, it. It really equates. Yeah, you're to our director, cinematographer. Tell me. Yeah, and, and you're you're helping with the staging by placing poses of the character along on the that's layout. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's yes. Like lighting director and, and uh, blocking. And the thing the thing that's interesting is that when the picture is done and they show the uh, scenes from the picture. Nobody knows what a layout man does. All the credit goes to the background artist. The layout man draws we the backgrounds, the, and then the, like Ivan Duro painted backgrounds that Joe had drawn. Yeah. Yeah, like in Sleeping Duty, they, they would trace that onto a illustration board, and then Ivan painted them. Gotcha. But uh, whenever you see a picture from Sleeping Beauty, <clears throat> it will always say... <laughs> Ivan Earl. Uh, yeah. yeah, but it was based on one of your layouts. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, 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 say, we're the unsung heroes of animation. Yes. Nobody knows what a, a layout man does, or nobody really cares. It's when the picture's on the screen is what they're impressed with. Well, and that, yeah. that's always the way. And and the one one thing that I uh, I think is uh, is certainly worth mentioning is that uh, and Al John, you mentioned it briefly. Lighting, the layout artist is also uh, uh, you know figuring out what the lighting is going to be, uh, and oftentimes do tonal sketches. Yeah, that's I see it, that's that. It. That's uh, Joe is showing us a, a story sketch. Love it. Or uh, it's a color story sketch oh, uh, wow. from, from Black Cauldron. That's amazing. Can you see it's wonderful. That? Yes, yeah, sir. That's fantastic, Joe. Oh, absolutely fantastic. Wonderful. Anyway, Joe, thank you so much for being on. Beverly, thank you for being there as well. It was really wonderful to talk to you about your entire career at Disney, uh, your World War II service to this country. You were part of the greatest generation uh, that uh, ever mobilized uh, to, to uh, win the World War. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right, no Joe. Disputes. Hey, Joe, Beverly, it was great seeing you. I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thank you so much for being on the Skull Rock podcast. Thank you, guys. How do we uh, send me the information so I can access the podcast? We sure. will. We'll send you a link. And I will, do, I, I will do that tomorrow via email, Beverly. Hold on a minute. Okay. Just one more. <laughs> one more thing. Always one more. This thing. This is a caricature. All right. Oh, that's fantastic. That's a caricature. Now, who's Dolly? Is Dolly is now Jolie? Ah, so uh, Joe is showing us a caricature of him as a uh, fair folk. That, that's uh, awesome. One of the sequences that was heavily trimmed and almost cut out completely from the film. All righty, Joe. Thank you. Thank you, Beverly. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend, and we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. 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 Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Anytime. And that was a great interview. What a lovely man.
Yeah, you know, Nancy and I went out to see uh, Joe and Beverly a couple of years ago, and I did a, like a couple hour recorded interview with him that I have stashed away for future use in some writing. But whatever that is, I don't know. But uh, I've got, you know, we, we've gone out and visited him. And then yesterday um, I had him on a panel discussion. We had Phil Nibling, the animator who did the Guaythank uh, uh, dragon animation. And uh, we had another guy named uh, Les Perkins who did some ancillary uh, bonus material for the subsequent like DVD and VHS releases of the film um and we we did a panel discussion via zoom for the hyperion historical alliance which is a i don't know if you the hha if you've heard of it um it's a uh, group of uh, Disney historians that I belong to. It's about a hundred and something of us. Uh, so we did, we did something for that yesterday. So it was really nice. And, you know, he, I mean, 95, the guy for, you know, he fought on Iwo Jima. I know. Right. Oh. And I didn't even know when he talked about it, I didn't even know that he was, uh, it went to Nagasaki after they dropped the bomb. Holy no, man. No, I had no idea. I know I, I had no idea he did that. Now I do. I did know that he was an Iwo Jima vet, uh, with the yeah. 13th Marines, uh, and the fifth, um, division. But, uh, you know, I had no idea, but man, what a great guy. Yeah, and yeah, Beverly. It was his, yeah, and his wife Beverly was also great too. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, of that. she she's a sweetheart. She really is terrific. You that, know, that's so. awesome. We do have some upcoming guests uh, coming up. Did you want to do a little tease to our listeners? Yeah, you know something. Uh, which which really neat is uh, we've got uh, coming up in November. We're going to have uh, George Scribner, who is the director of Prince and the Pauper, the Mickey Mouse uh, featurette. Uh, that's celebrating its thirtieth anniversary. Uh, this month, uh, and also uh, film composer Bruce Broughton is going to be joining us later in the month as well. Uh, we're we're just starting to bring on all kinds of cool guests, and I, I, I'm having fun, and I'm loving the fact that we're getting email questions uh, and questions through social media from our listeners. So keep that up. Uh, and uh, we look forward to seeing you right here again next week on the Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Kristen Hetzel, co-host of Dining at Disney Podcast. Every week I chat about dining at Disneyland and Walt Disney World Resort and Disney Cruise Line with my fellow foodie, Bubba. We also feature restaurants and food reviews, information to help you plan your dining, Disney food news, recipes, and a monthly panel discussion. Visit DiningAtDisney.com and subscribe to Dining at Disney Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. Dining at Disney Podcast, the happiest plate on earth.